Hi, I'm Bob Ekblad. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple. Word, Spirit, Justice, Witness. I'm here in Zambia. We arrived a couple days ago. I flew from Seattle to Istanbul, Istanbul to Nairobi, and then now we're in Endola, which is kind of right near the southern border of Congo. And I'm here doing our Certificate in Transformational Ministry at the Margins um, with a couple of uh, colleagues, one from Cape Town and another guy from Sweden, and then two Zimbabweans who took uh, the bus all the way up here from Gweru. And so we're a team and we're offering this four-day training to about 150 to 200 Zambian pastors and leaders. And it's just been amazing. It's been a wonderful time. This is a beautiful, lush land and um, also very poor. And um, people are hungry for spiritual input. And we're having a lot of, a lot of fun just sharing different um, biblical texts. So we were just looking yesterday at the story of Cain and Abel. You know, and I read this as from the perspective of, of trying to get back into Eden. You know, the woman and the man have just eaten of the fruit uh, in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and then they've suffered the consequences. They've been expelled from the garden, from the place of grace, you know, through their own attempts to kind of live by taking you know, um, rather than just living by receiving all the bounty of, of God's provision in the garden. The God who said, eat, eat of everything, um, but don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because on the day that you eat of it, you will, you'll surely die. You'll die, die, literally in Hebrew. So now let's look at sort of the first event that happens outside of a garden. Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve, or literally the man knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So we look at this in detail, um, trying to identify these different characters. You know, who is Cain? You know, who is Abel? What do we know about them from the text? And I invite people to participate. And so um, some of the details of the text that people don't notice, because we find that many people are not accustomed to reading the Bible really carefully. And this is one of the things we really bring to these trainings. We're working with uh, semi-literate and mostly untrained readers, most of whom have not graduated from um, high school, and um, no one really has gone beyond high school if they've graduated from high school. And um, these are, are people who, you know, they preach and they, they hear preaching, but there's very little actual Bible study that goes on in a lot of these uh, Pentecostal churches that we're serving. And so I, I had to really kind of give them some ideas in the beginning. Um, so we talked about how the man knew his wife. Eve, and, um, and how that's a notion of, of just sexual intercourse that is common term, you know, knowing, um, which is translated here in the New American Standard as the man had relations with his wife. 
and uh, she conceived and she gave birth to Cain. And so we determined that, okay, Cain's the firstborn. And uh, I asked people, well, is that an important status um, symbol for people in Zambia? And uh, is, it, is it better to be firstborn than to be, you know, second, third, fourthborn? And everyone's, oh, yes, you know, being firstborn is, is way, way better. You know, you get way more benefits. You have all these responsibilities as well. And, uh, okay, so Cain's the firstborn, and he's the firstborn male, which also is, um, is really a high-status uh, position in any Zambian family or most African families. And, um, but I point out how also his name, Cain, means uh, vigor or, you know, sort of uh, power, strength. And so he's the firstborn. And, um, and then also the text emphasizes way more about Cain. Um, there's a lot of uh, um, verbs and, uh, of action describing his birth and conception. The man knew his wife, Eve. She conceived, she gave birth to Cain, and then she said, I have gotten a man-child with the Lord. So here, um, far from sort of uh, any kind of sign of the woman uh, giving birth in, uh, you know, pain in childbirth, you know, like earlier in chapter 3, verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth or child raising. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So this is considered a consequence of, of you know, of them being out of relation with, uh, you know, with God's original intent. And it's not something that is a descriptor of what it means to be sort of a healthy woman or a man. Um, this is part of the, the fall. So anyway, so here we don't see any sign that this woman is suffering any pain. It's rather this machista. You know, I've gotten a, a man-child, and that term in Hebrew is a full-grown man. So, like, I've gotten a full-grown man, you know, with the Lord. So it's like bringing the Lord into it as well. And um, the divine name is used there. And then, uh, so then we look at Cain in contrast. Uh, verse 2, again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So I asked people, so what sort of attention is given to Abel? Well, there's very little that's said about Abel in comparison to Cain. Very little attention given to Cain. It's just, again, uh, she gave birth. No mention of uh, the man knowing his wife, of her conceiving. It's just straight to the birth. Again, she gave birth. And Abel is called his brother instead of just Abel. So he's, uh, you know, his identity is in, is in rapport with the older brother. And, uh, and his name, Abel, means vapor, vanity, um, in contrast to vigor, uh, power, you know, strength. And, um, and so I ask people, like, um, are, there, um, are there people in Zambia? that are sort of more in the category of Abe, of Cain, who have uh, a lot of attention given to them and have um, a lot of benefits and who are the powerful, like who would they be? And people mentioned politicians. Um, and I said, okay, well, what about, you know, white, white men, men and women, white people versus black people, like, like who would the, 
black people be associated with, who would the white people be associated with if you were to compare them with Cain and Abel? And they were saying, oh, the black people would be Abel. Um, and the white people would be Cain. And so just naming some of the power difference differentials, like what about men and women? Who would be the Abel? Who would be the Cain? Well, the women would be Abel. Um, the, the men would be Cain. Um, and certain tribes have more importance, more power in the country. So some tribes would be more associated with Cain and others with Abel. And, and certain uh, you know, education levels would be associated more with Cain. And those that are illiterate or less educated would be more associated with Abel. And uh, people who, you know, who were pastors, um, you know, um, there's a whole pecking order of pastors, of leaders in churches. There's apostles, there's pastors, there's bishops, there's teachers. There, many people are, de are identified that way in, in the setting that we're ministering in. And so, you know, I guess bishops and apostles, they would be more like Cain and the lower level people that aren't even pastors, you know, maybe lay people, they would be more like Abel. And so I was inviting people to, uh, you know, to kind of look at this from a social perspective, you know, social class divisions and racial divisions perspective and, and nation states. Okay, well, what nationalities would be associated more with Cain and which ones would be associated with Abel? Well, being a U.S. citizen would make me associated with Cain. Um, you know, having my degree, my doctorate in theology would make me associated with Cain. Being white, okay, um, being able to stay in a, the hotel I'm in compared to just sleeping in a really humble uh, family's home would associate me with Cain. So we got then looking at um, how in verse 3, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And I asked the question, well, why is Cain bringing an offering um, of the fruit of the ground? And is God requesting an offering? And if you had just been cast out of this place of paradise, this, this garden, you know, uh, maybe due to your parents, uh, their m misdeeds, which is the case in this story, um, you know, um, and you... Your role is to be a tiller of the ground. That's Cain's um, vocation, right? And we know that um, from earlier, uh, the ground has been cursed um, in chapter 3, verse 17. Um, God says to Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have, listened, have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat um, the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And, um, and so anyway, after that, uh, it says that God, um, you know, um, he drove the man out. Um, that's the term cast out in the Greek version of the Old Testament. So Ekbalo, he cast him out and um, at the east of the Garden of Eden and stationed cherubim in flaming, with a flaming sword that turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, So Cain, um, why is he bringing an offering? So I asked the people, do you ever try to bring something, make an offering of some kind of sacrifice in order to get God to help you? you know, to bring you out of a situation that feels like a cursed situation or a 
just a, a situation of poverty or, or, or difficulty. And like, oh yeah, everybody nodded their heads, yes. Well, how do we, what kind of sacrifices do we make to get God's, uh, to, you know, to help us? Um, and, you know, the prosperity gospel is live and well in most of Africa and certainly in Zambia. So, you know, I'm, I gave an example. I said, how many of you have ever been to a church service where someone said, okay, um, the first person to bring a hundred, you know, um, hundred dollars or whatever the equivalent is in their currency to the front, God's going to bless you with 10 times as much. And, and everyone laughed and it's like, that's a common practice in a lot of, uh, during a lot of offerings. And so a lot of people fast also in order to get a breakthrough, financial breakthrough or breakthrough in their ministries and 40 day fast or 21 day fast, you know, water fast or Daniel fast where you only eat vegetables, um, you know, sacrificing in order to get a favor from the deity is rooted in, in a lot of their, their cultural practices from way, way back, you know, sacrificing goats and you know, other kinds of animals um, to the gods. Um, and so bringing a sacrifice is, is part of the culture of, and, and is part of the religious culture. So um, Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fast, fat portions. And so we look at how, in the next verse, the Lord had regard for Abel or looked uh, at Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard or he didn't look at it. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell, his face fell. Um, and um, so we talked about that. Why, why would Cain be upset that God looked upon Abel's offering versus Cain's offering? And, um, and I asked people, like, if special preference was shown to the Abels of Zambian society, you know, to, um, you know, to women, to the poor, to the uneducated, um, to um, people with disabilities, people with mental health disorders, to prisoners, to whoever would be the Abels, you know, to Zambia on the global scale versus to, you know, America or France or, or a powerful Western nation, China or whatever, um, would the powerful be happy about that and everyone's like oh no you know of course not they'd be really upset and so um you know we talked about how those that have privilege they want to keep the privilege and, and they feel entitled also to all of the status that they get um and even when we were there um when you know we had uh, lunches that are provided for all the people and we are ushered right to the very front of the line you know, being the outsiders, being the teachers, and, um, you know, and then come the apostles and the pastors, and there's a whole pecking order. Um, and so the class divisions are, are just even built right into some of the church, uh, the way the church operated. And um, and I'm expecting some of that to, to change, you know, because we're, people are really seeing just the amazing upside-downness of the kingdom of God it's visible in, in a text like this and, and a lot of the other stories we're reading. So, um, so let's see what happens. Um, so Cain became very angry and his face fell. Okay, so, so what does that tell us about Cain uh, in his heart that he gave an offering, but because uh, his brother's offering, 
was chosen over his, or was just seen, noticed over his. He's angry, and people were like, oh, well, he, he didn't have the right heart. You know, I mean, someone should be glad and just delight that God would really see, um, you know, a, another person who had less status and less importance. Like the heart of God is, is to embrace the lowly. And, you know, we, we know this from the Magnificat. He brings the powerful down from their thrones and he, um, he makes them sit in the dust and he brings the, the poor up and makes them sit with princes. So let's see what happens now in this story. So typically um, in so many settings that we minister, when we ask the question, well, do you believe that sin separates you from God? And everyone, oh, yes, sin separates us from God. Um, you know, there's that theology that is just everywhere and it's present in, across the board in many different, every, nearly every religion. Like uh, God is too holy to look upon sin. If we want to get an audience with God and help from God, then we have to deal with our sin and we have to clean ourselves up, you know, get our act together and, and come before God uh, righteous. And so that provides the incentive to, you know, it's part of the sacrifice to get God to give us what, we're, what we want, what we need, is just cleaning up our acts. So uh, anyway, um, the, so he's angry because whatever he's doing isn't, isn't working, and, and there's nothing obvious about why Abel's offering would be chosen over his. So the Lord said to Cain, um, so anyway, here, this immediately challenges the theology that sin separates God, who's considered to be too holy, to engage with sinners from us as sinners. The Lord speaks to him. And of course, this isn't new. This has already happened in the garden when, um, you know, when the man and the woman, they eat, ate at the tree and uh, their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked. And, and then um, right away, it says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So God was out there looking for them. And they hid themselves. And then the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? So God is asking these questions. And so this got us into this amazing discussion about how God is a God who does not um, withhold God's presence from sinners. Um, and, um, you know, when I ask people directly, if you're super angry, is, uh, is that a time when God's going to come close to you, do you think? And they're like, oh, no, no, no. But in the story, right away, God comes to Cain. Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? So two questions, you know, and and so I was challenging people to think about moments of temptation. Like we even have the scripture that uh, God doesn't allow us to be tested or tempted beyond what we're able to withstand, or that's the same word as afflicted, you know, but with the trial or the affliction or the temptation comes a way of escape, okay? So here's a way of escape that's offered to Cain in God coming to Cain. And of course, prayer is not just us making moves and efforts towards God, but it's God moving towards us as human beings. So prayer is two-way communication. This is prayer, God speaking to Cain, asking Cain um, a question, why are you angry? And why are your, is your face fallen? This is the dialogue that God is um, engaging um, Cain in. Um, if you do well, Will your, not, will your face not be lifted up? Um, there's another question. If you do well, won't your face be lifted up? 
And of course, we don't know what it means to do well. That's not defined here. But um, all of these questions are questions that invite dialogue. And God wants conversation. God wants came to pray um, and, and is trying to stir up prayer, uh, you know, conversation, relationship. If you do not do well, God says, sin is crouching at the door. Okay, so here uh, there is an, a third party evil one who's being identified as predatory. And um, when we do not do well, whatever that means, um, which in this case seems clear that, um, you know, Cain is angry because his brother's been given a special notice, okay? Um, when we do not do well, whatever that means, sin is crouching at the door and its desire or its lust literally is for you. So in other words, there's predatory evil that is right there ready to jump on you. Um, but you must master it or you will master it literally in Hebrew. It's, the, it's, the, it's a future tense, but it can be translated this way too. You must, will, master it. And so right now God is, um, even though Cain doesn't respond to God, his questions, God gives him several questions, three questions, and then counsel. And then um, we see in verse 8, Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So clearly, Abel, um, Cain, was not, you know, engaging with God and wasn't analyzing even the roots of his anger. He wasn't thinking, well, why am I angry? It's because I feel uh, like, like my, my sacrifice was worthy of a response or I feel shame because I made such an effort and, and I, my, my sacrifice wasn't looked upon. And then, um, and then here we have God speaking. So now the murder is taking place. This would be the perfect occasion for that sin separates us from God theology to be reinforced by the story. But what happens? Then the Lord said to Cain, once again, God speaks to Cain and doesn't withhold communication. And this is so radical for the people that we're working with, and it should be for us as well, to think that even in the midst of our, um, in our, of our disobedience and our sin, our rebellion, you know, our misdeeds, that God steps up God's communication. Um, through questioning um, us, where is Abel, your brother? So God addresses Abel, um, Cain, as re regarding his brother, saying, where is Abel, your brother? And, um, and so finally we have Cain responding. I do not know. He responds with a lie. Am I my brother's keeper? He responds with a question. And of course, we know that, yes, um, based on Genesis chapter 2, the, the man is put in the garden to cultivate and to keep it, to guard it. And so um, maybe Cain hadn't been instructed about God's original, um, you know, sort of the vocation of, of humans in the garden. So um, he asked the question, um, first he lies, and then he says, am I my brother's keeper? Um, and, um, and God responds. He said, uh, what have you done? Okay, another question. Inviting repentance, right? It's like all the way through here, God is inviting introspection, you know, like self-reflection on what, what's going on inside of Cain. And, uh, and then uh, confession here, what have you done? And then God uh, shows that he's not just passive and uh, indifferent, and there's not just a, a cheap grace here. Rather, um, 
God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And, um, and so we know that God even hears the voice of the victims. And, um, and this is something that Cain is, uh, it's put in Cain's face. He's the truth of what's happened and about Abel's location, or at least the location of Abel's blood um, is, is being exposed. So this is like prophetic exposure. Um, and then also consequences are stated. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Um, so before it was uh, cursed is the ground because of you, but now it's uh, something even beyond that. Cursed are you from the ground. Okay, so it, it's going both ways. Um, the ground is cursed, but now also um, Cain, his own vocation as a farmer is being, uh, is being blocked. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. So God gives a Cain a consequence which puts him in a place of vulnerability and poverty in a way. He becomes a refugee. He becomes a, a, a sojourner. And this could be read as a grace, right? Because uh, being a vagrant, being a wanderer is putting is being in a place where you are needy. And, and that's exactly the effect that it has because Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. So here we have more of a humble confession, more of a humble uh, declaration of just the, the difficulty uh, that this is putting Abel or Cain in. Um, and, um, and he tells God directly, and, um, like a lament or a complaint, behold, you've driven me from um, this, you've driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face I will be hidden and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. So he adds that to it, like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm really feeling vulnerable here and now. I'm just going to be killed as well. And so here would have been the opportunity for God to say, well, too bad. I mean, you know, you killed um, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But instead, the Lord said to him. So we have back and forth dialogue. It's so beautiful to me that God is engaging so much with Cain. In fact, you have, you have an acceleration or just an increase in communication uh, with Cain that um, ends in this statement of protection that God gives Cain. Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. So Cain actually gets a sign of protection over him, an amazing grace. But with that, um, it says that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So that gives the idea that he leaves the presence of the Lord, although it's not completely clear. It may just mean he left that time of prayer then and there, and rather than him just choosing to, you know, to go away from, from God's presence. Because some would say, well, sin doesn't separate God from us, but it can separate us from God in that we can rebel against God and refuse God's provision. But Cain, Cain did not refuse God's provision. He received that mark of protection. So anyway, this gets us to um, just uh, reflecting on just how this notion of prayer of God asking us questions is everywhere in the Gospels. Like we can see in Jesus's um, teachings all through the Synoptic Gospels, we have Jesus asking questions. You know, um, why is it that you have no faith? 
Jesus says to the disciples when they're in the storm um, crossing over to the other side to where the Gerasene demonic, demoniac is. Why is it that you have no faith? Or um, who do you say that I am? Jesus says um, in Luke chapter 9. And everywhere, I mean, if you make lists, there's just numerous, numerous, numerous questions that Jesus asks his disciples. And so may we be alert to the kind of questions that, uh, that come our way from, from God, from the Holy Spirit, as provoking, you know, inspiring, um, inciting us to prayer. One question that I have is, um, okay, so this sacrificial uh, effort of Cain didn't lead to him getting back into the garden. Rather, he becomes a vagrant and a, like a refugee, and, although he has God's protection outside of Eden. But would there be a way into the land, um, back into this place of the paradise? I think that that, that question is answered by looking at how did the first humans end up in the garden? If we look, it says, from dust you will take and from, from dust you shall return. Is returning to the port of entry, the place of dust, such a bad thing? You know, in a way, being a vagrant and a wanderer is being in that place that's close to the dust. You know, we have um, us, um, this tech, this, this invites us to go right to the beginning of, um, of the story of uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field was yet, had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no human to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground. Or we can read that. The Lord God formed the earthling. This is the term Adam, uh, which comes from ground, um, from the dust, from the ground. So, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the earthling became a living being. So I asked the people, so what was this earthling doing? What was the man doing um, when God uh, did this? Was he praying? Was he on a 40-day fast? Had he made an offering? Had he brought a sacrifice to God? Was he reading his Bible and everyone's laughing? No, no, no. What was he doing? Well, he was just dust. Okay, so being in that place of dust is just being um, in that place maybe of recognition that you're powerless and, and we need um, a savior, a creator to take us um, and to form us and to breathe into our nostrils the breath of life in order for us to become a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So there, there's how you get into the garden. It's you, you, you get into the garden through what Luther would call his passive righteousness, where we are made righteous by God. You know, we are the ones who are qualified by God. You know, this, this brings us right to Colossians chapter 1, where it says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, who has transferred us from the authority of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption. And the forgiveness of sins. So, you know, um, Cain needed um, to really come to a revelation of the grace of God, which was unmerited favor. And we need that too. And really, this story is a story that confronts 
uh, religious posturing as uh, as a no is not the exit, you know, from the way of temptation that um, you know that that Paul talks about when he says that you know with every affliction and temptation there's a way of escape. Um, you know, religion is not the way of escape. The way of escape is listening to the voice of God and and being in re- relationship with God and recognizing that. Um, there's nothing we can do except just humbly uh, be in that place of the dust and and just recognition, um, like Cain did when he says this punishment is too great for me to bear. You know they're they're going to kill me and and help 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 you know save me. And um, so this this was just a huge beautiful blessing to go through this Bible study yesterday with these with these people, and I hope it's uh, hope it's blessed you as well.